So if you have your your Bible and you would turn to uh, Galatians uh, chapter 2, we are actually today continuing our our series through the the book of Galatians. Uh, This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians uh, living in in what is now modern-day Turkey, so kind of central southern Turkey. And part of the reason that he is writing is that he is very concerned because false teachers have arisen in this church, and they're beginning to teach that we aren't saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, but we're actually saved through our works, through the things that we do. But also these false teachers were starting to make accusations against the Apostle Paul, and they were saying, all right, Paul, you're not a real apostle, you're kind of a fraud in that, that the the other apostles, they were with Jesus for the, the three years of his earthly ministry, uh, and they're teaching a completely different message from you, and so we're going to go with them instead of going with you. So part of what Paul's doing in our passage today is beginning to confront that accusation. So again, Galatians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1, and this is on page 972 in the Pew Bible that is uh, under your seat if you need that. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and sat before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, and in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter or had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic mission to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that the words of our mouth, that the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that your spirit would guide our study of this passage and that you would be applying it to our lives and our hearts in you, Lord. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think that Three values that, that we see in the world today are the values of unity, freedom, and diversity. That we want unity in our family, in our nation. We want freedom from oppression or freedom to choose to live our lives the way that we want. And then we also want diversity in our communities, and our, um, our world as well, in our country. And if you think about it, this unity, freedom, and diversity are really at the heart of the American experience itself, that, that we talk about 
being the, the land of the free and the home of the brave, or, or we talk about uh, having unity and diversity. And so even if you look at our money, it says in Latin, a pluribus unum, which is out of the many, one. So, so you see that the unity and the diversity. So in our passage then today that you just heard read, uh, we see the, the Christian perspective on unity and diversity. And it's all played out in the life of the Apostle Paul as he's going up to Jerusalem for the second time. So we'll just walk through our passage and, and look at these three values individually. So the first is unity. And if you think about it, unity is really necessary for civilization to exist in general. That, that we need unity in weights and measurements. You might remember a while back there was that climate orbiter and around Mars that crashed because they didn't convert from the English to the metric measurements, right? That, so it, it didn't work because they didn't have unity in, in measurements. Uh, but we also need unity in currency. If you travel internationally, you know how frustrating it is to try to convert your money at the little kiosks or something like that. Uh, we also need, on the most basic level, just unity in our language, that if we don't speak the same language, we can't communicate. So we need to have a common understanding of words and, and languages. But even though it's so important to have this unity, we see just division everywhere in the world around us. We see, in America, division racially, economically, culturally, politically, and if you, even in Pennsylvania here, if you drive out to, to Gettysburg, you have this really visceral reminder of what it looks like when unity begins to unravel and fall apart, that, that people went out and slaughtered each other by the tens of thousands. And, and thankfully, we're not at that place yet in our political climate here, but, but I always say, you know, in some ways, if you imagined, if you put Democrats and Republicans on the opposite side of a field, you know, what would they do? So we don't know. Uh, uh, but the, the reason I think that, that it, this unravels so often, this, this unity, is that we don't actually know where it's grounded. We, we don't know where unity is actually found. And this is something that I, I think that in our culture will say, well, we want unity, but what do we actually unite around? Do we unite around race, or do we unite around economics, or around culture, around education, or morality, or sexuality, or nationality, or sports, or religion, that, that we want unity, but, but even there we can't really be unified, because <laughs> we don't know even what it means to have unity at all in the first place. And that's what we see then here in our text, that the Apostle Paul is going up to Jerusalem to seek unity, but he's seeking unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we, we saw last week that, that this is his second visit to Jerusalem. He, he talks about his first in chapter 1. And if you look at verse 1, he says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Uh, so this is in a, a section in Galatians where, where Paul is, as I said earlier, he's defending his claim that I'm a true apostle. And he's going through his own spiritual biography. He's, he's outlining that. And this is an important part of that, of that biography. And so here we see him 
recounting this visit, look at verse 1 again. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So you'll notice here that the reason that he's going up. He says that it was because of a revelation. And again, we saw last week that this may be a prophecy that's mentioned in another book of the Bible, Acts 11. Uh, but either way, it's clear that he's, he didn't go up because he was summoned. He wasn't called by others. But God specifically told him to go up to Jerusalem. But then also you'll notice that his purpose, why he was going up. He says that it was to set the gospel before those who seemed influential. And, and at first that maybe sounds a little bit sarcastic, right? Those who seemed influential. Uh, we, we might say that and not really mean it. But here actually he, he really sincerely means those who were actually influential in the early church. And, I mean, when we know that from um, looking at the fact that he's trying to silence the accusations of the false prophet. So look at who he actually went up to meet. He's meeting Peter, John, and James. So who are these people that he was meeting? Well, Peter was the, the leading apostle, right? He, he is the person who was with Jesus for the three years of his earthly ministry, who was the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and then who authored two books of the New Testament, the book of First and Second Peter. But then also we see in verse 9 that he wasn't just meeting with Peter, who's called Cephas here, but he was also meeting with John, who was another person who was with Jesus for three years, who was called the, the beloved disciple, who was actually the one that Jesus entrusted his mother Mary uh, as he was hanging on the cross. And this is a person who wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. He wrote the book of John, the letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. But then also, Paul met with James, who was the, the half-brother of Jesus. And so this is a man who grew up with Jesus. Uh, there's some confusion about whether or not he was perhaps a, a child of Joseph through a prior marriage um, before Jesus or a child of Mary and Joseph after the birth of Jesus. But either way, he, he grew up with Christ. He knew Jesus. Uh, he didn't actually recognize Jesus as the Messiah during his earthly ministry, but after the resurrection, he became a really important leader in the early church, authored the, the book of James that we also have in the New Testament. So these men who seem to be influential, if you include Paul in the mix, in his 13 letters, these men, in this one meeting, authored 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And most scholars think that Peter also had a role in Mark, so if you throw that in there, then it's 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And so I would just love to have been there in that room to, to, to hear their conversation, to hear them talking about the gospel. I mean, it must have just been an absolutely incredible meeting as Paul is laying out to them the gospel that he received directly from Christ. But it's also a little bit strange, if you think about it, that Paul, he's going up to Jerusalem because of a revelation of God to set before these men who are also writing the New Testament the gospel. 
And he wasn't doing that because he, he needed to clarify the gospel or because he wasn't clear on it or anything like that. But he was actually doing it to make sure that they were all on the same page, that he knew that his ministry would be ineffective if the false prophets and the false teachers were always saying that, oh, well, th- these people aren't agreeing. So he wanted to say, let's get on the same page with the gospel so that everyone knows that we're teaching the exact same message and the same Christ. And so that this witness, this apostolic witness to the gospel will be even stronger. So then it's important to, to understand then what kind of unity he's seeking. That he didn't just go up to Jerusalem to seek unity for the sake of unity. He wasn't a, a Unitarian Universalist. He wasn't a pluralist. He, he, was, he actually, if we look at it, he wasn't even afraid to ruffle feathers as he's going up there. Uh, in, in verse 1, it says that he br- brought Barnabas and Titus with him. Now, Barnabas was a, a faithful Jew who converted to Christianity very early. He was actually influential in the spiritual development of Paul as well, um, and it invited Paul actually on his first missionary uh, trip. Uh, but Titus was a Gentile. He is somebody, unlike most Christians at his time, who didn't start in Judaism and then move to Christianity. But he, he repented of his sins, trusted in Jesus, and was baptized into the church. And so he was basically the, the test case for salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And, and it's easy for us to miss at first, just, just reading through this in our current cultural context. But this was actually a really brave, kind of bold move on Paul's part, that it's, it's kind of like an African-American uh, bringing a, a uh, sorry, a white person bringing an African-American into a white-only restaurant in the segregated South or something like that, that if you wanted just to have everybody happy, not ruffle any feathers, uh, this would not be the move that you would take. But Paul, he didn't want unity with false teaching, He didn't want unity with those who were going to use religion to try to divide people racially and culturally. But instead, he wanted unity in the truth. And so this is a a great example for us of actually what it looks like to to seek unity as well. That, That we're not seeking just unity for the sake of unity. We're not seeking unity with those who are denying the essence of what Christianity is about or those who are defending racism or sin in the name of Christianity, but we're seeking unity in and through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have unity. That's where it's grounded. And so as you think about what this might look like then in in your own individual life, here are two examples. Imagine that you're at your job and you're in the break room and everyone's sitting around and then they, they start talking about somebody else who is not there in the moment in the room. And they're, they're not saying nice things. And so in the moment, you think, all right, I know this isn't right. I know that this is, this is gossip, maybe even slander, right? Gossip is saying true things and slander is saying false things. But then you think, well, I don't want to be that divisive person that I want to maintain unity in this room because, well, I don't want to seem like I'm trying to argue with anybody, so I'm just going to join in or not say anything. Um, And so that's a certain type of unity. 
But it's not the kind of unity that, that Paul is seeking here in this passage. That I, and we'll see this actually in the next week as, as Paul confronts Peter, uh, who is being inconsistent to the gospel. But I think Paul in that situation would have been willing to say, say, no, this isn't right. This isn't consistent to the gospel. That to have a certain kind of division from what everyone else is doing, to seek another kind of unity actually in the gospel. But here's another example. So imagine, again, you're, you're in a workplace, and, and you find out that somebody else in your workplace is a Christian. And, and so this person um, is in a completely different denomination or something like that. So, so say you're a Reformed Presbyterian, and they're a charismatic Baptist or something. And so, so then you're, you're, you're tempted. You're thinking, all right, I'm going to go start to, to pick theological fights with them and figure out all kinds of ways to, to disagree or you just kind of dismiss and say, well, there's such different views on everything. I, I just can't take this person seriously. But then as you're talking, as you present the gospel to each other, you realize, oh, wait, we, we both believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in one person. We both believe that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that, that he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, that he died a sacrificial death, that he rose again, and he, he admits that he can't save himself, that he's trusting in, in Jesus for everything. And, and in that moment, you say, whoa, we're actually brothers. We have so much in common. We have far more in common in some ways than we have uh, differences. And so it's not then that the differences don't matter or that there's not a place to talk about those things from Scripture. But at that point, then, what we're seeking is, is unity around what is most important, unity around the gospel and saying, yeah, that, that I want to encourage you in, in your walk with Christ and as you are a witness to Jesus, uh, to, the, to the watching world. And it, even like Paul says, to make sure that, that I was not running or had not run in vain, that we want to make sure that we're, we're working with people and not working against them, so seeking this kind of unity. And actually, I, I saw a picture of this. at a, There's a gathering that happens occasionally in Philadelphia called the Church Planning Connection. So it's people throughout the Philadelphia region who are working to plant new congregations like, like this. And people come from different racial, cultural, economic, denominational backgrounds, but they're all united around the central message of Christ. Um, and so there can be disagreements. We could have discussions. But there's a sense of, yeah, we are on the same page in terms of who Jesus is, what he did, and what that means. So we seek unity, not for the sake of unity, but for the sake of Christ. So that's the first value, that Paul went up to Jerusalem to seek unity in the gospel. But then the second value is freedom. Now, in our, in our culture, we also talk a lot about freedom, that we can define freedom in, in different ways. It, freedom could mean saying, I, I want to be able to, to live my life however I want. I want to be able to sleep with whomever I want, whenever I want, or I want to have economic freedom or freedom of worship. And, and it is a great thing to have freedom. That, that's something that we celebrate, living in a, in a free country where we're not subject to oppression, where there is an ability to, to live our lives without oppression or without being fearful for our lives. But then here as well, I think that there can be a bit of confusion about what freedom actually means. So if you're here and you're skeptical about Christianity, maybe a, a friend brought, brought you along and, and you're saying, yeah, I don't, I don't think I, I necessarily believe at this point, 
then I would be interested to know if you associate Christianity with freedom. And in some ways, I bet you you may not. You may think that Christianity is just about rules, that Christianity is just about people telling you how to live your life or what to do with your money. And I think then that this is where we see a really different picture in our passage, because scripture actually has a lot to say about freedom. Look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, that, it's, that's kind of a mouthful even to, to read. Uh, one commentator called it a, a grammatical train wreck. And, and you can see it even in the English translation. They're try, there's all these dashes because he, just, he starts one thought and then interrupts himself and then qualifies it and qualifies it again. And, and you, can, you can sense his tone that he's getting kind of worked up and getting really excited in the way that we do where you just start interrupting yourself because this is something that you're really actually passionate about and you care about. So why is he getting worked up? Well, he's worked up because these false teachers have entered into the Jerusalem church, and their, their goal is to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ. So it's that, look at how Paul's describing Christianity. He's saying that it's, it's freedom, that it's freedom in Christ. So he, in a sense, is saying that these false teachers are kind of like spiritual slave catchers or spiritual kidnappers, or spiritual human traffickers that are seeking to bring people into a certain type of slavery, into a certain type of bondage. So that's a really serious claim that he's making about their teaching. So what actually were they teaching then? What, how did this slavery manifest itself? Well, as we, we've said, even throughout our sermons, that these false teachers, they, they claim to be Christians. They, they said that, yeah, you should believe in Jesus. He's the Messiah of the Old Testament. But then they were saying that, that if you want to be saved, if you want to be into, in a relationship with God, that, yeah, you, you believe in Jesus, but then you also follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament and that those are necessary to be saved, necessary to be accepted by God. And especially it was focusing on circumcision, that saying, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses. And so if you, if you think about that, the formula, if you were to put it in a formula of what they're saying, it's salvation equals faith in Christ plus good works. So that, that's the formula that they were teaching. Now, that message is something that we don't necessarily come across every day, right? You don't hear somebody saying, well, you must follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament or you can't be saved. But this is what the Bible calls legalism. And it, it's the idea that, that you add something to your relationship with Christ in order to be saved. And it's, it's kind of like a con man that will try to, to rip you off but then we'll just get a different hat if it fails and come and try it again in just kind of a slightly different form. So today we see it in the form of something like this that says, unless you read your Bible and pray, you can't be saved. Or unless you perform this ceremony or go to church, you can't be saved. 
or unless you don't drink, you can't be saved, or unless you're a really nice person, you can't be saved. But, but really, the formula is exactly the same. It's exactly the same as what the false teachers were saying. It's, it's salvation equals faith in Christ plus something else. And you can fill in whatever you want in that spot. But it's something that is added to Jesus and the sufficiency of what he has done for us on the cross. And this may sound fine at first, or maybe you think, well, that's not that bad, is it? I mean, that's not slavery and bondage. But what we see in scripture is that anything that we're adding to Jesus is ultimately something that we are enslaved to. So if, if somebody's saying that to be slaved, I have to have these spiritual disciplines or these ceremonies or these rules, that we're going to end up slave to those things, slavishly trying to follow them, trying to earn God's favor, not sure if we've done enough, not sure if it's all going to add up, and we have no certainty that if we were to die that we're actually going to be with God, and so we live this life of fear and bondage. But thankfully, that's not Christianity, that Christianity is a message of, of freedom, that it's a message of, of salvation, Then the, the, the formula is salvation equals faith in Christ plus nothing that we add nothing to our salvation but our sin, and that Jesus does absolutely everything, where he, he lives the perfect life that we couldn't live, that he dies the sacrificial death in our place. And then all we do is admit we can't do it, trust in him, our sin is counted to him, his righteousness is counted to us, we're accepted in God's sight as children. And this is why in Galatians 5.1, Paul says, for freedom... Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so this is, is freedom, that Christianity is about freedom from the fear of death because Jesus died in our place. It's about freedom from the tyranny of the power of evil, and from Satan that would hold us captive because Jesus has triumphed over all of those things by rising from the dead. It's about freedom from endless rules to try to earn God's favor because Jesus obeyed everything. It's about freedom from the wrath of God because Jesus took the wrath in our place on the cross. But it's not just freedom from things, it's also freedom for things, that we're freed to love others, to serve others, freed to begin to fight sin in our life because God has actually given us the Holy Spirit. Christianity is freedom. So that's our, our second value, that Paul went up to Jerusalem to, to fight for freedom in the gospel. But then also, he went up to fight for diversity. And this is our final value, diversity. And this is also something that we hear a lot in our culture today, and, and in good ways as well, that, that we want a diverse nation. We want diverse schools. We see initiatives for diversity. But I think that a lot of times we give more lip service to diversity, but when it's actually put into practice on the ground, we don't maybe like it as much as we claim to. And I saw this actually in my, my undergrad school. So it was a very progressive art school where everybody would have said, yeah, we want diversity above everything. But then if you went into the cafeteria, that's not actually what you would see, where African-Americans would, would sit with African-Americans, and whites would sit with whites, and musicians would sit with musicians, and actors would sit with actors. That it, it was extremely divided. 
And again, I think the reason for this, and you may have seen this in your own life, is because we don't actually know where to find unity, so then it's really hard to celebrate diversity. Because the line between diversity and division is not a very large line, that it's really easy to slip from diversity into division and saying, no, we're so different that we can't hang out together or we can't interact. Now, we notice here in our passage what diversity actually looks like. But Paul, he's going up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and with Titus, so with this diverse group, people from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, people who grew up speaking different languages, ate different foods, had different customs, but they were all united in Christ and who Jesus is. And so then, then they could actually celebrate their diversity, that, that hey, we're, we're not going to force Titus to be circumcised or to adopt these Jewish customs because we can actually be different because of what Jesus has done for us. And really, the gospel has this unique power of destroying division. And it's done it over and over again. And, and this is because the gospel doesn't tell us what language we have to speak. It doesn't tell us what kind of music we have to listen to or what kind of clothing we wear. And it definitely gives parameters for all of those things. So it's not like it doesn't have anything to do with how we live our life. But it doesn't define every detail. And I think that, that that's something that makes Christianity so unique from many other religions and, and world systems. Because, I mean, even if you take Islam, for example, it tends to bring a, a certain culture, a certain dress, a certain way of, of living. And it, it's not very adaptable in that sense. But Christianity is extremely adaptable to culture without losing the essence of what Christianity is about. And I think of it a lot of time as this wildfire that it will burn in one place, jump the fence, burn in another place, jump the fence. And we see that played out in history that it began in Jerusalem with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, jump the fence to Samaria, to Antioch, to the Roman Empire, up into Europe. It stretched into Asia, the Middle East, India, the New World. And then even today, Christianity is growing faster and wider in South America, Asia, Africa. And in those places, it's not just a Western Christianity, that, that Christianity takes on a, a unique flavor of the place that it is, but without losing the essence of the gospel. And this is because when we have unity in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that it always overflows in this diversity. And that's something that I really long to see for Hope Church, that we would be a place where there are people of different races, different ages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, people who maybe look at politics differently as we try to have everything uh, shaped by scripture, and, and people who have different preferences on, on music or on, on aesthetics and those sorts of things. And that can be a really wonderful thing, especially when we are united in Christ and not letting those things drive a wedge between us. And so we've seen that Paul went up to seek unity, freedom, and diversity. But what was the outcome of this? Did, did his mission succeed? Well, we see that, first of all, the apostles did affirm unity in the gospel. It says in verse 6 that they added nothing to Paul. They said, yeah, we teach the same gospel. This is the message we received from Christ. They 
gave the right hand of fellowship and said, we're excited that you're going to go minister to Gentiles and we're going to send Peter to minister to Jews. And, and this is fantastic. So they could have diverse callings as they're ministering to people and caring for the poor. But then also they affirmed the freedom of the gospel. They didn't force Titus to be circumcised despite the pressure from false teachers. And they recognized that we aren't saved by Jesus plus something else, but we come to Jesus with our sin and give everything to him, and then that brings freedom and life and joy. But then they also affirmed diversity, that the, the church can be racially and culturally and economically diverse, and that the church isn't restricted to one type of person. And this is why in chapter 3, just a chapter later, Paul says, For as many as you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So you don't give up your culture to become a Christian, but you constantly critique and reevaluate it and shape it through the lens of Christ. And this is also what we see here in the Lord's Supper, that we see a unity, that the Scripture says that, that just as there is one loaf, so that we are one body in Christ, that, that when we partake of this meal, this is a statement of unity around the gospel, around what Jesus has done for us. But then also this, this meal is, is the statement of freedom, that, that we are free from endless rules. We're free from having to bring animals and having bloody sacrifice, but instead we can enjoy this, this meal that God has prepared for us in, in joy. But then also we have diversity, that when we, when we come to this meal, we don't come... Um, as the same person, but we come with different struggles, different gifts, different callings, different prayers. And that's also something that is, is really wonderful about the church together. But also then, this meal has what we were talking about of, of showing us where we are united, but it also shows that dividing line where this meal, and scripture is very clear, is not for those who have not confessed faith in Christ. And so if you're here and, and you're, you're not trusting in Jesus or you're still asking questions or you think that, that you can do it on your own or if it's the Jesus plus something else equals salvation, we're extremely thankful that you're here. We want it to be a place for, for people to explore Christianity and what it's about. But we wouldn't want you to go through the motions here to, of something that doesn't represent what you actually believe. But then also, if you're here and, and you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm wrestling with this, and I think I'm beginning to believe and see that this unity and freedom and diversity in the gospel, but you've never actually made that public by being part of a church that preaches the gospel, then again, I would encourage you to, to wait and talk to me, and I would love to, to talk about what it looks like to follow Christ and to celebrate this together with you. But also, you could be here and you're saying, I'm a believer but maybe you're holding on to some persistent pattern of sin in your life. You know it's wrong, but you're just not wanting to give it up. Or maybe you have a, a grudge against somebody that you just can't forgive. And so this could also be a place of saying, hey, today I'm going to wait. I'm going to come go do business with this other person or with the Lord and come back and celebrate this next week. And, and it can be a, a place to, to drive us to that as well. And if there are small children here as well, we would ask them to, to wait until they could be interviewed by the leaders of our church so that they 
can also understand what's going on. But for the rest, you, you don't have to be a, a member of Hope Church. You don't have to have everything together, but quite the opposite. You're admitting you don't have it all together, and you're trusting in Jesus and confessing and coming to him with all that you have and not trying to add anything else to the sufficiency of his work. And so let's take a moment before we partake and actually confess our faith together using the Apostles' Creed. Um, so this is an ancient statement of belief, and this is what we, what we believe as we come to this meal. So this is on page 11 of your order of worship. Read with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So this is the, the creed of your life, the, the only hope in life and death, and come and partake. Because on the night that he was portrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the way that this will work is you'll, you'll come forward in no particular order, just when you're ready. I'll break off a piece of bread, give it to you. You'll take the cup of juice. Return to your chair, and then we'll take it together at the end. We also have um, gluten-free here, if that's something that you need. And if, if for some reason mobility is an issue, no problem, just let us know, and we're happy to bring it to you as well. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have given us true unity, true freedom, true diversity. And Lord, I, I pray that, that you would forgive us for all the ways that, that we have willingly just tried to destroy unity or the ways that we have given up our, our freedom for, for slavery or the way that we have uh, not valued the, the differences of, of those around us as people created in your image and unique members of the body. And so I pray that this week that this would begin to impact the way that we live, the way that we love others, the way that we serve you. And Lord, we thank you for uh, this meal. We thank you for Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was shed in our place. And Lord, we pray that as you are present with us um, in spirit, Lord, that you would strengthen us, uh, strengthen us throughout the week, Lord, and that this meal would sustain us till we gather again through your word by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.